The NCAA is considering a tweak to its transfer rules. But first, an unlikely SEC West team is number one in the 24-7 sports composite team rankings for the 2019 recruiting class. It's April 10th. I'm Connor Tapp, and you're listening to the 24-7 Sports Morning Blitz. After picking up five commitments over the weekend, Ole Miss has surged to number one in the 24-7 Sports Composite for the class of 2019. We're joined now by David Johnson of OMSpirit.com, who's going to tell us more about it. David, we'll get into why this ranking should maybe be taken with a little bit of a grain of salt in a minute. But for now, is it not a heck of an accomplishment for Matt Luke, given everything Ole Miss has gone through over the past couple of years, to have this recruiting class at number one in the 24-7 sports composite, even at this early stage of the 2019 cycle? Yeah, Connor, no doubt about that. I mean, if you find me the person that six months ago would have said, hey, Ole Miss at any point in this 2019 cycle is going to ascend to the top of the 247 sports team recruiting rankings, um, I I just wouldn't believe them because, uh, you know, no one expected this. And, And, yes, it is a matter probably right now of quantity over quality but that's not totally true. I mean, when you look at, at the commits they have, uh, you know, they've gotten five commits over the last 72 hours in this class, and then one of them was the one Black. Uh, Black is a, is a four-star prospect, one of the top prospects in the state of Mississippi, and he's the nation's uh, you know, number eight athlete in the 247 sports composite. So this is a kid that, that everybody's after, had a Mississippi State offer, Arkansas, Florida, Tennessee, uh, you go on and on. Uh, you know, this is a kid that they've got in the boat now. They they got a commitment from Grant Tisdale out of the state of Texas on Friday, the number eight dual threat quarterback in the country. Uh, so there is some there there uh, in this class, even though it is 15 members strong right now, and that's kind of surging them up the top of those ratings. Uh, it really is a quality class. A couple of sweepers amongst the three star prospects that they have, and uh, you know they've got plenty plenty more room to add to this class. I think in the end, you'll see them sign between 25 and 27 in this 19 class. So, you know, the question for Ole Miss isn't, can they hold on to that number one ranking? They won't, and we all know that. Uh, The question is, you know, how high can they finish when it matters in February? You know, can they put together a top 10 class? And I think that's what you're uh, looking at, at what they're aiming towards right now. There are no shortage of Mississippi State fans who would have me believe that the only reason Ole Miss was able to sign players like Robert Kim DJ and Laquan Treadwell in the first place was uh, Hugh Freeze doing dirt. Um, so we're, we're seeing that Matt Luke is able to keep it going with signing some big-name prospects. So, I mean, what is he doing right? Matt, Matt's whole deal this year, Matt Luke's whole deal this year, has been Mississippi made. And when you look at this Mississippi class this year, it is a it is a generational type class. Usually this state will produce, you know, four or five, maybe six four star prospects. You've already got fourteen four star prospects in the state this year. Generally speaking, a, a state that We'll, we'll, we'll put out maybe 15 SEC prospects in any given year. I think when you look at this class this year, there are 30 to 35 SEC caliber prospects in this class. And, 
you know, that's something that, uh, you know, is part of the reason that Ole Miss is number one in those recruiting rankings right now is that there's so much talent at home in Mississippi. They have nine high school prospects committed already, which is a far cry more than anybody else in the state. Mississippi State has two. Southern Miss has two. Alabama, LSU, and Baylor each have one apiece from this state right now. Uh, so there's still a lot of uncommitted talent in this state. And, and I think that's played a large part. Matt Luke is a Mississippi guy. And he, he just happens to inherit the program full time in a year where Mississippi's got a class like it probably hasn't had in 30 years. And uh, he's working it. They, they're working that angle, and it's paying off for them. Uh, you mentioned Ole Miss probably has room to sign 25 to 27 players in the class, so that would give us about 10 to 12 more from where we're at right now. Knowing what you know about what le- is left on the Rebels' board at this point, what would you say is – a realistic best guess finishing position. Yeah, I don't think it would be overly ambitious for Ole Miss fans to hope that that they can finish inside the top ten this year. Uh, we've seen that happen at Ole Miss twice uh, during the Hugh Freeze era, so we you know we all know that's not impossible. Uh, it, it seems unlikely considering everything the program's been through over the last couple of years with the NCAA investigation, Freeze's scandalous departure, things like that. But the reset button has been pushed here. It's been pushed uh, with this coaching staff. Uh, you know, there's a feeling of, uh, of renewal, so to speak, around the program right now. So I, I think, you know, it's not overly ambitious to hope that they can pull in with a top 10 class, particularly if they can continue closing on some of these top prospects right here in Mississippi this year. They're not going to have to go out of the state a whole lot to, uh, you know, to, to make that happen. You've got a five-star linebacker right up the road from Oxford, Mississippi, and the Kobe Dean and Ole Miss is probably going to have to battle Alabama down to the wire for him, but he's certainly a possibility. Uh, another four-star linebacker down in Gulfport, which is Matt Luke's hometown, uh, Derek Hall, uh, that, that, will more than likely climb on board and a host of others right here inside the state of Mississippi. So it's not like they're going to have to, you know, farm the fertile fields of Georgia or Texas or Florida to make that happen. The talent for them this year is right here at home in Mississippi. Is there a minimum level of success that you'd think Ole Miss would need to have on the field in order to keep this group together? You know, I think that that plays a part of it. I certainly do. Uh, maybe not as much uh, of a part for these Mississippi kids uh, as it does for some of the out-of-state targets that they have, but but that's always a factor. I mean, they're going to have to win games. Winning games makes recruiting easier. Uh, they have an offense that's more than capable of doing that. The question marks for this football team going into the fall is whether or not the defense can be average. And with their offense, if they come up with an average defense, you're talking about an Ole Miss team that – I don't think it's far-fetched to think that they could win eight or nine games. But if that defense is, is, is no better than what it was last year or the season before, you're talking about an Ole Miss team that's probably going to struggle to win six. David Johnson writes for omspirit.com, where right now you can find his analysis of the Rebels' massive recruiting weekend and much, much more. David, thanks for joining us. Connor, thanks for having me on. Former five-star quarterback prospect Shea Patterson will not be a part of Mississippi's 2018 season after opting to transfer to Michigan. 
Patterson is pursuing a waiver from the NCAA to play immediately in Ann Arbor. But complicating matters is the fact that Ole Miss is objecting to Patterson's waiver appeal, Dennis Dodd of CBS Sports reported on Monday. Though it won't come early enough to do Patterson any good, there's a legislative push to prevent schools from interfering with students' ability to transfer freely from one Division I program to another. Last week, the Division I Committee on Academics recommended a change to the NCAA transfer rules that would allow student-athletes with a GPA of at least 3.0 to transfer to any other school without having to sit out a year. Here to help us understand what's next for this proposal is 24-7 Sports National College football writer Chris Hummer. So, Chris, now that the Committee on Academics has recommended the change to the Transfer Working Group, what are the next steps that need to be taken for this to become an actual rule? There are several things that will need to happen, but um, basically the recommendation now moves the NCAA Transfer Working Group, which in English is essentially a group of uh, administrators and uh, NCAA, uh, outside of NCAA personnel that... Uh, look at potential rule changes, then eventually uh, propose a particular rule change from a number of proposals that were sent to them. And then it uh, goes to the uh, D1 Council for a final vote. And uh, if it's approved at that point, it would then be enacted whenever they decided uh, the enaction would take place. The incentive for student-athletes that's being introduced here seems to make a degree of sense. Keep your GPA up, and you'll have an easier time transferring should you need to. But this proposal doesn't enjoy unanimous support. So, Chris, what are its critics concerned about? Yeah, the main rationale there is that a GPA at one school isn't always equal to a GPA at another. Uh, I don't want to throw any schools under the buses, but it's bus, but it's not like Stanford. A GPA, a 3.0 GPA at Stanford is not the same thing as a 3.0 GPA at uh, Navarro Community College in my hometown. Obviously, Vero Community College is not the example here, but the point remains that not all GPAs and not all degrees are equal, and that's a large concern. The idea that you might limit opportunity for a student-athlete at a more difficult school who would like to transfer for a better opportunity for themselves. And then there's also, if you're being frank, kind of the... The racial element that comes with this, obviously some students come into school better prepared than others, and you're harming their potential chances in some cases with this rule potentially if you make it GPA-based because they have um, less of a learning base coming in in some cases, if that uh, makes sense. Oh, I can definitely see how one might make the argument that tying this ability to transfer to GPA confers additional advantages onto those already born into privilege while disadvantaging those who were not. If this rule were to be implemented, what's the earliest that players could take advantage of it? Uh, I think if you saw this happen, it would come into effect pretty quickly. Um, You wouldn't see the effects of it really during the 2018 season. Obviously, there will be a couple players who decide to transfer after spring practice and they'll know this rule is coming into effect and they'll be able to consider that option. But most of the transfers you'll see will start to happen in 2019. For example, the NCAA's proposal would come into effect during the 2019-2020 academic calendar year. So for some schools, that would be summer of 2019. For other schools, it would be fall of 2019. But either way, that would be the window where you could see those transfers become official. 
But we all know the way uh, this works. And essentially at that point, you'd have kids being uh, at least talked to and back channels about coming to their schools as early as the end of the 2018 season. So you'd see activity pick up pretty quick after the 2018 season. So, Chris, is there still a possibility that this nothing will come of this? Yeah, it's it's a complicated issue that's come up numerous times in the past. I think this is the third or the fourth iteration of this transfer working group in the past like 30 or 40 years. And our transfer rules haven't changed significantly. I think right now there's a lot of pressure on the NCAA to change the rules because they're quite antiquated no matter which way you want to look at them. But the solution as to what is the best way to do it isn't exactly concrete, and there are a lot of opinions on this. And you could easily see the transfer working group submit a proposal that the D1 council doesn't approve. More than likely they would, but there have been instances in the past where the D1 council has voted on something and decided that wasn't the right proposal for the time or decided it needed tweaking, and it pushes the proposal back another year, and they essentially go back to committee. So there's never a guarantee with these things. Anytime liberalizing the transfer rules come up, uh, coaches put out the argument that it'll send us down a slippery slope toward free agency in college sports. Do you sympathize with that argument at all? And 10 years from now, what do you think the NCAA's transfer policy looks like? That's a difficult question because I can completely understand the slippery slope argument because at that point, if you're allowing college kids to transfer freely, is it really focusing on academics anymore? Can you really kind of pretend that any longer? And I think that's part of the reason you see the NCA submitting this academic proposal. But at, at some point, you're going to see this transfer rule change. I don't know how it's going to change or what ultimately is going to come out on top because there's not really a consensus right now. But I think in 10 years, you're going to see the end of a day where a coach can leave the school and a kid can't have the opportunity to leave on his own if that happens, if you committed for a coach and you went there for a coach and you need the opportunity to play, these kids are going to be able to transfer. Um, how that comes about and how that looks, I'm not sure, but I think the days are at least coming to an end where you put kids in an unfair situation that coaches and administrators aren't responsible for themselves. Chris is a national college football writer for 24-7 Sports. You can find his writing at 247sports.com, and he is on Twitter at Chris underscore Hummer. Chris, thanks for joining us. No problem, man. Thanks for having me on. The Morning Blitz will be back tomorrow, April 11th, with a brand new episode explaining and analyzing the biggest stories of the day in college football. If you enjoyed what we're doing at The Morning Blitz, please consider rating and reviewing the podcast. And tell a friend to give us a listen.